the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. O Lord, grant us grace to sing the new song of your salvation, that the nations might hear of your love and join in the joyful song of your mercy and grace. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Our psalm of the week is number 96. Uh, I just read the first opening verses. It's one of those psalms in the 90s, like last week, you had, O come, let us sing to the Lord a new song, that in the imperative directs us to sing. So we sing. And this new song is the song of the gospel of God's grace in Christ Jesus. So it is interesting that a couple of these great hymns of the Reformation like 555, Paul Speritus, salvation unto us has come by God's free grace and favor, talks about singing. Dear Christians, one and all rejoice. Luther's hymn talks about singing. So singing is central to the life of the church. And the new song is the song of God's grace. New should make you think of the New Testament in the blood of Christ. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. And it's not as if that song has not been sung before Christ. It has. The Psalms themselves uh, many of those that talk about singing are a thousand years before the birth of Christ. It is rather contrasting new and old with new by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, in contrast to the old way of thinking, which was the wrong way of thinking, that salvation was by human merit. So the church overflows in rapturous joy, and every Sunday, the angels of heaven and all the company of heaven sing, Holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth, Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. So that is the song of the angels, you know, and we join in church militant on earth with the church triumphant. And so that's why we sing with all due respect to the prevailing attitudes of our time where this must be curtailed. Uh, we cannot curtail that message. All right, we are in our second week on the uh, second article of the Creed, and the color of the congregation at prayer is as close as we could get to red in the collection of... Uh, when it's red, it's hard to read anyway. So pink, it's a softened red, huh? Uh, the red of, the, of Reformation, or the red of saints' days, or the red of martyrs' days, should remind us of the blood of Christ and the blood of the martyrs that was shed in testimony to their faith in Christ. Okay, so that leads us to our verse for the week, which is 2 Corinthians 5, 21 a verse which connects to the second article of the Creed. Uh, it, this is in brackets because in the text itself is he made him, who is the he, God as in God the Father, made him, God the Son, who knew no sin, he was without sin, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Christ. Let's speak this together and then we'll make a few comments on it. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In the Old Testament, what did the lambs for sacrifice have to be? 
What did the Passover lambs, for example, have to be? Angela. Without blemish. Without blemish. And that without blemish, no defect, was a sign that the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world would be unblemished, that is, without sin. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, it is inaugurated by what event? Jesus' ministry. What event? His baptism. John was befuddled, even though he was preparing the way for Christ's coming, even though he knew he is Messiah, he is Savior, he's the source of salvation, he was befuddled because John was baptizing sinners. They came confessing their sins to be baptized by him in the Jordan to wash away their sin. Then Jesus comes for baptism and he doesn't get it. And Jesus says, permit it to fulfill all, and he uses this word, righteousness. So John allowed him to be baptized even though he didn't understand fully what was going on. But after he was baptized, remember, what did John witness in hearing and in sight at Jesus' baptism? Jesus is in the water. What else did he witness? What did he hear? The Father speak from heaven, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, and the Holy Spirit descended in the form, visible form, of a dove. After that event, Jesus comes up out of the water, and then John's message becomes even more focused. He understands it. Now, ironically, who was John's father? Zechariah the what? Priest. What do priests officiate over every single day at the temple? The sacrifices. So here's this son of a priest whose father was a priest who himself would have engaged in the ritual life of the congregation where there were daily sacrifices, unblemished sacrifices for sin, it is not recorded in the Gospels, but I submit to you that in his own mind and heart, John was, what an idiot I am. Because after Jesus' baptism, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And remember, the Lamb of God, the, the, the lambs, the sacrifices, upon them was Imputed, and that's the language of the Old Testament. Imputation. Upon them was, not amputation, uh, imputation. Upon them was imputed or charged the sin of the world, the sin of the congregation. So here John says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. On the Day of Atonement, there was the scapegoat. And they laid hands on the scapegoat. That expression, you know, someone has to become the scapegoat, bear the, the blame for something he perhaps didn't do. The sin of the congregation was laid upon the scapegoat, and then where is he sent? He's driven out into the wilderness, driven out into the wilderness, outside of the congregation. What is the event that immediately follows Jesus' baptism? He is driven into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So what is going on here is at Jesus' baptism, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Upon Jesus is imputed the sin of the world, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So the events of Jesus' ministry, the sin of the world is imputed to him and he's driven out into the wilderness. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay. And ultimately his baptism finds its fulfillment in his death and resurrection. So does ours. So 
on this side of the grave, in this world you will have tribulation, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. We follow him who has taken our sin upon himself, that his righteousness might be our own. And then we will die and rise with him on the last day, never to die again. So for the Christian, the fear of death uh, is not part of our vocabulary because we know that it is better to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. And we await the resurrection on the last day. Now this verse is an interesting verse. This phrase here, to be, actually is supplied in the English because that's the way we speak. But if you were to take it literally, it would be God made him who knew no sin, sin for us. Get it? God made him who knew no sin, sin. So God made him sin. Now that's a dramatic sounding thing, isn't it? But this corresponds directly to when God says, you are righteous, you are righteous. God made him who knew no sin, sin. God makes you who are the sinner, Righteous in him. Okay? Now this phrase, great that it comes on the Reformation, dikaiusine tu theu, the righteousness of God, is a phrase that Luther, before his tower experience, as it sometimes is called, misunderstood. For him, the righteousness of God were God's demands upon him. I can't keep God's demands upon me. So God says, do this. These are my demands of you. This is Luther's thinking. But I can't keep God's demands. And then God says, if you don't keep these demands, then I'm going to damn you. So he says he hated the God who made demands of him that he could not keep and then damned him because of it. There's no hope for me. Despair. And he tried desperately under the medieval theology of the day, which is still alive and well today, to please God, to keep the law. And the more, no matter how hard he tried, the more desperate he came, it became for him. That's why he says in the hymn for the week, fast bound in Satan's, Satan's chains I lay, death brooded darkly o'er me. Sin was my torment night and day, and sin my mother bore me. Yea, deep and deeper still I fell. My life became a living hell, so firmly sin possessed me. Cool. An emergency, huh? Okay, okay. So the, the, the windows of heaven flung open when he understood this phrase, the righteousness of God, he had it completely backwards. It wasn't God's demands upon him or every other human being, but rather what God had done in the offering up of his son as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So as we've talked about in past... The phrase, the righteousness of God in the book of Romans, for example, or Galatians, refers to God offering up his son into the death of the cross for us. So the righteousness of God is Christ's righteous sacrifice upon the cross. Pastor Gelbach? Just a few verses before, it says all things become new. It's the same becoming, becoming new, becoming righteous. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Yeah. For God has reconciled the world to himself. For God made him who knew no sin, sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Wally? Purge yourself of all your latent Roman Catholicism yes. tendencies. Okay? Seriously, seriously. Uh, that, that, you see, this is part of the thing that, that the, the, the good news of the gospel of God's love is that he does not remain distant from us. But he draws near to us, so near to us 
that literally our sin becomes his. Body and soul, he bears it to the tree. There's always in medieval theology, Roman theology, a bit of a distance. So we sing the hymn, from a distance. This is why the Virgin Mary has to be immaculately conceived because God would not use a sinful woman. No, he used a sinful woman. Okay? In the Lord's Supper, very important, we partake of the blood of Christ. He himself took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. So this holy communion, all sin and sickness and disease, he took to himself, that all of his righteousness in the sacrifice of his body and blood on the cross might be ours. That's why the common cup is still the way to go in terms of the sacrament. Mr. Hahn. Uh, in place of new, no, that he committed, no. Um, that is true, but it doesn't go far enough. Because the knowing here, I'll get to you, Susan. I see your hand. <laughs> I want to give others a chance. <laughs> the knowing here, while it's Greek, it still takes us back to the Hebrew knowing. Remember the knowing of good and evil? When Adam and Eve partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they knew evil. It was not an intellectual enlightenment, but they knew it like a man who goes into a prostitute knows her. So the defilement, the corruption, became Adam's and Eve's when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So they became sinners. So also, to say that Jesus became a sinner is exactly what the scriptures say. That's my point here. Now, he knew no sin, but he became sin. He became the sinner for us. That's what the blessed exchange is all about. That's the happy exchange. So, so if this person is troubled by their sin, troubled by guilt, you mean to tell me that Christ took all of that? He became the sinner that I am for me? Yes, that's the blessed exchange. That's the happy exchange. Okay? And that's, that's the good news. Then if he did that, then I really am free of the judgment of hell. Yes, I really am free from my sin. Yes, that's the point. Because everything that we deserve for not simply the sinful acts and words and deeds, but for being sinful, he took upon himself. Susan. Jesus bearing our sin would be more like Jesus taking our illness than carrying the groceries or something. Where you can, you can carry something and it doesn't affect you, but it, it was more like bearing an illness in your place. Than yeah, right. So, uh, it, it would be like saying that he, he got the coronavirus for us, okay? He got cancer for us. Sin, this original sin is called concupiscence, a disease, a corruption. He assumed that corruption into himself. So don't you ever doubt God's love for you? On the basis of that, you see. This is the happy exchange, the blessed exchange. That's Luther's phrase. Okay? And we can't fathom the idea that God would do that. But that's the love of God, you see. Okay? Was there another hand I thought? I was going to say, if you diminish the first part of what is being sin, you diminish the remainder of too. Yeah. And so the righteousness that we become in Christ then comes to full flower in the resurrection on the last day. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. 
for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. For this corruption must put on incorruption, this mortality must put on immortality. Now, the corruption that gives way to incorruption, the mortality that gives way to immortality, that incorruption and immortality is totally Christ's. Again, that's the blessed exchange. So when God declares us righteous, Abraham believed God and he was accounted righteous through faith for Christ's sake. That comes to its full expression and completion then in the resurrection when we become immortal and incorruptible. See, so that means our, we are not sinner in the resurrection. We can't imagine what that is because now we still feel the filth of the flesh. 1 Peter chapter uh, 3 in regard to baptism, not the removal of the filth, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. So the justification of the sinner before God, our justification will result in finally the resurrection on the last day. Just as he has risen from the dead, lives and reigns to all eternity. Okay? This is very important. This is, this is the heart of the gospel. And you could say, oh, that's pushing it too far. No, no, no. Churches don't push it far enough. If they pushed it far enough to realize and to proclaim what Christ actually did for us, and then the result and what that means in terms of our full and complete forgiveness, and that we stand before God righteous because it is the righteousness of the death of him who bore in his body and soul all of our corruption, then we would not fear death. Okay? That's, that's what Paul is talking about in the Romans 8 passage when he says, let's want it, we better look at that because you're doubting that this is really true. <laughs> you can tell by the look on your face. But it's, it's, I was thinking about this again last night and then today during the, the hymn to depart and to see the children in the academy who have been singing all week long through Jesus' blood and merit, I am at peace with God. And to hear them sing those words, that's what being a Lutheran Christian is all about. And Paul was a Lutheran. And so uh, in Romans 8, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he says in verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. There he is talking about the glory of Christ's righteousness that gives way to resurrection, to immortality, and incorruption. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Then he talks about the creation subject to decay in the curse of the fall is groaning like a woman in labor pangs. And then he says, verse 28, we know that God works in all things for our good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, whom he justified, these he also glorified, and there we are anticipating in those words of glorification the resurrection from the dead, the complete and utter eradication of sin in Christ. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Answer, no one. He did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge of sin against God's elect, those who are called to faith by the gospel? No one. It is God who justifies. So if he says, you are righteous, Elijah, you are righteous. Who is he who condemns? No one. Why? Because Christ was condemned for sin, having borne the sin of the world upon the cross. It is Christ who died, see, and furthermore is also risen. So that is the testimony that his sacrifice as the sin bearer is absolutely, categorically, 
accepted by the Father. And the testimony of that is his resurrection. Furthermore, is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or the coronavirus? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, which means even if we die, yet shall we live. And that's, the, that's always the progression. You know, I am the resurrection and the life. When Jesus says that, he's saying, I am the resurrection and the life because I became sin for you. That's how come he's the resurrection. We don't connect the death of Jesus with the resurrection of Jesus. And it is his death that caused his resurrection because his death paid the price for sin, made atonement for sin as he bears in his body our sin and death. All right, Philip. Correct. The forgiveness caused his resurrection. The, re the, the healing of the paralytic is really a miracle that is a sign of the resurrection. Because he was paralyzed, which is the image of being in bondage to sin and to death, and then when Christ forgives him, he makes that forgiveness visible in his resurrection as he rises up from the state of being crippled and walks. Yeah, that's correct. All of, all, of, all of the miracles of Jesus, all of the healing miracles, are in some way, shape, manner, or form icons of the resurrection. They anticipate and look forward to the resurrection. All right, Genesis chapter 40. Time to go back to Joseph. Your Christians, one and all rejoice is one of the hymns that Dr. Robert Preuss quoted all of the stanzas from memory in our dogmatics class on the Lutheran Confessions. So he coupled the dogma with the church's song. It was fantastic. All right, now, last week we highlighted these central thoughts concerning Joseph, that he was a prophet of the Lord by a gift of God's grace. And that status of being a prophet was seen in the fact that God gave him dreams and visions. Second point, Joseph's brothers hated him because the sinful heart despises God's gifts of grace to others in general and specific. So God made him a prophet and they envied him. Now, part of the cause of envy is a faith in works. Because if the faith is in the grace of God, which believes that the gift you receive you don't deserve, okay, then there's no, there's no cause of resentment in the slightest. But if you believe the gift is based on merit, then you say, I am just as good as Joseph is. How come I don't have this? And the, the battle between faith in works and faith in grace goes all the way back to Cain and Abel. Cain murdered his brother Abel because he envied Abel whose offering was accepted. And Cain's faith was, I'm just as good as he is. And he hated his brother and envied him because of it. It's that same jealousy that we see in the brothers of Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph, third point we made last week, and sustained him by his grace whenever he suffered adversity. And he did suffer adversity. 
and we will too as Christians. Now, uh, to bring us up to speed to today, chapter 40, remember, he was not only sold into slavery, he became servant in the house of Potiphar, who was captain of the guard for Pharaoh, and then his wife falsely accused him of rape when he would not commit adultery with her. He does not defend himself, but like Jesus, he takes the blame, covering over this woman's sin, preserving her union with Potiphar, and he is subject to imprisonment in the dungeon. When he is in the dungeon, the Lord is with him, and the keeper of the dungeon elevates him to a position of some significance uh, within his incarceration. He interprets the dreams of the butler and the baker of Pharaoh, and they come to pass. The baker is delivered from prison only to be executed. The butler, the cupbearer for Pharaoh, is delivered from uh, prison to be restored to Pharaoh, to his butlership, but he forgets Joseph. While he forgets Joseph, the Lord does not forget him. In chapter 41, Pharaoh has his dreams. Do you remember what they were? The first dream, do you remember, Jacob? It was dreaming the cows. The cows, and the first set of cows, how many were there? Seven cows. Were they fat or skinny, the first group? No, actually, the first group was fat. And then came along seven skinny cows that ate up the fat cows, but they remained skinny. Okay? Uh, that was the first dream. The second dream was like it. They were the bundles of grain, full and and plump fruit, and they ate up the, uh, the uh, then there were the withered and blighted grain, shriveled fruit, and the withered and blighted ate the fat and plump, but remained shriveled and blighted. The dreams are one. There was no one in Pharaoh's cadre of wise advisors who could interpret the dreams. And then the butler remembered, hey, there was a guy in prison who interpreted the dreams of me and the baker. And they bring Joseph out, they wash him up, they clean him up, they bring him before Pharaoh, and he interprets Pharaoh's dreams. There's going to be seven years of plenty, bumper crops followed by seven years of famine. And in chapter 44 excuse me, 41, verses 55 and uh, 57. Well, prior to this, Joseph had recommended that the Pharaoh put a wise man in charge. And then verse 55 through 57, so when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Then Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, do. That is called trust. You know, that the Pharaoh trusted Joseph. Uh, because the, uh, Joseph had faithfully delivered the Lord's word to Pharaoh, and it came to pass just as he said. The famine was all over the face of the earth, and Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, and the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. So all the countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain, because the famine was severe in all the land. So we'll go to chapter 42, and I want you to understand that throughout all of this adversity, on the one hand, the Lord is with Joseph, on the other hand. And the Lord is prospering Joseph, however, the prospering of Joseph, now put this in your, um, uh, what's his name, Rick Warren uh, mind frame. The, the prospering of Joseph was not for his own benefit, but for the benefit of those he was called to serve. Uh, he will make the statement several times that the Lord did this to save people, to preserve people alive. 
And that theme is so very important and significant for us to remember. God puts us in our office, in our station, in our calling in life to benefit others. So, and that's true not just when things are going well for us, but it's also true when things are going badly for us. In fact, one could say it's maybe even more true then. For I have certainly learned the most, been comforted and strengthened by what those Christians in their suffering have testified to, borne witness to, in how they lived under that suffering. Okay. So in chapter, uh, I want you to remember these thoughts. Joseph's brothers would bow down to him as prince of Egypt in fulfillment of the dream that the Lord had given him. But when they are bowing down to Joseph, who was the Lord's prophet, what are they ending up doing? What does it mean? What is its significance? When they bow down to him as the Lord's prophet. It's not only fulfillment of the original dream. That's true. Listen to my question. When the brothers bow down to him who is the Lord's prophet, who spoke the Lord's word, who are they bowing down to, Jim? They're submitting to God. They're submitting to God. They're bowing down to God, which is always what faith is. The faith that justifies, the faith that declared, by which we are declared righteous, the faith that saves, is the faith that yields to the word of the Lord and says amen to it. It's all over. Abraham believed God and it was accounted righteous. Remember, when God called Abraham, he was a rich man. And he was called to leave his home and leave his father and go to a land he had not known before. I'd rather just stay where I'm at. Thank you very much. Okay. When Mary was called, she was called to a life of suffering. Even though she would be blessed with being the mother of the Son of God, she says, let it be according to your word. She bows down. When we are brought to contrition and repentance for sin, we are bowing down to the Lord's word and saying, it is true. So this is not about the exaltation of Joseph in the slightest. It is not about bowing down to him as the greater person, not in the slightest. It is entirely about faith in the Lord and yielding to him. So Joseph would test his brothers and treat them harshly, not because he was embittered toward them. If you read in a commentary or hear from someone that Joseph was ticked off, and so that's why he treated his, his uh, brothers roughly, that is not true. By faith in the Lord, he did what he did. It gave him no pleasure it is why when he finally reveals, he can't take it anymore, it's tearing him apart, and he reveals himself to his brothers. It was necessary for them to experience the judgment of the law's proclamation in order to bring about their contrition. So, chapter 42, Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt. Jacob said to his sons, why do you look at one another? I love this expression. How many, if you have any, you have to have kids to, to uh, you know, understand, right, Jody, Becca? Indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there that we may live and not die. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, lest some calamity befall him. Remember, Joseph and Benjamin were the two sons born to Jacob and Rachel, his beloved and most favorite wife. Who's your favorite? Well, never mind. 
And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. You see, when you fight against the Lord, you will lose. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. Then he said to them, where do you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. Now, he recognizes them. He is dressed as an Egyptian prince. The only one higher in the land is Pharaoh himself. And recognizing him, he's been there for you know, well over a decade, probably going on two decades. It's been probably 20 years because he got seven years of famine, who knows how many years before that. We're now into the years of, of, of uh, seven years of plenty. We're now into the years of, of famine. Perhaps it's 15 years, but at any rate, it's been a number of years. He speaks Egyptian. He speaks to them through an interpreter, we learn later on. So he is totally disguised as the Egyptian prince, and they've not seen him in years. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Then Joseph remembered the dreams. Now, remembering in the, in the Torah, in the book of Genesis in particular, is significant. The Lord remembered his promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We've highlighted this numerous times in the past. It's not because he forgot, but the remembering means he is acting on the basis of that word. So also here, Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed, and these dreams came from the Lord. Therefore, he is acting on the basis of the Lord's word to him in those dreams. And what does he say? You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. You know, the vulnerability, the exposed parts. Now remember, spies are those who pretend to be, finish the sentence, someone they're not. A spy is someone who pretends to be something they're not. They had successfully buried this sin. And they pretended to be faithful, honorable sons of their father. They killed their father. They murdered their brother by selling him into slavery. They covered up the lie, and they let their father live under that delusion that his son Joseph was long since dead. All right. They said to him, No, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. Now that's true. We are all one man's sons. That's true. We are honest men. That is not true. Now they're telling the truth at this moment, but they are covering and living a lie. Your servants are not spies, but he said to them, No, you've come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, your servants are 12 brothers. True. The sons of one man in the land of Canaan. True. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today. True. And one is no more. There's the lie. Well, he's no more with the family. But what is the actual truth? It says, one is with our brother, and the other one we sold as a slave, so he's not around anymore. That would have been true. So they're living a lie. But Joseph said to them, it is as I spoke to you, saying, you are spies. Now, one of the things that comes about in these, in these brothers, they're grown men now, but more and more they are feeling naked before this strange prince in Egypt and the circumstances that surround them. More and more they are feeling as if they have no secrets. Now remember what Adam and Eve did, the very smart thing they did, you know, after they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they tried to hide from God. You cannot hide from God. 
He already knows your sin before you have concocted the plan to cover it up. And he knows the depth of the evil and the deception better than we do. So he says to them, in this manner you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Now consider this. From a human reason standpoint, given what they had done to Joseph, is there any reason for him to believe with confidence that Benjamin actually does live? No. If they killed or wanted to, Joseph, favorite son of Jacob, why not Benjamin, the last remaining son of Rachel? Okay? Send one of you and let him bring your brother, and you shall be kept in prison, that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies, men who pretend to be something they are not. So he put them all together in prison three days. What a coincidence. After three days, there is resurrection. That's always the way it is of some sort. Then Joseph said to them the third day, Do this and live, for I fear God. And that was true. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house, but you go and carry grain for the famine of your houses. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, now this is what they're saying to each other. Notice how the treatment that Joseph gave them, while harsh, is beginning to accomplish God's intended purpose. We are truly guilty concerning our brother. That's true. For we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us. There we learn that he pleaded with them for mercy and for release. But they did not heed his plea. His plea. And we would not hear, therefore this distress has come upon us. And that is true. So their sin is, which they had buried, beginning to be brought to the light of day. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen? Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. Now, while it is true that Reuben did that, what did Reuben also fail to do? Protected. Not only protected, but he was already sold at that point. He, he failed to disclose what really happened to their father Jacob. So that he is part of the conspiracy as well. And they did not know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke to them through an interpreter. And he turned himself away from them and said, Good, now you're getting what you deserve. No, he did not. He wept. He wept in love and compassion for them. Remember the old expression of parents to their children, this hurts me more than it hurts you. Then he returned to them again and talked with them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. So Simeon becomes surety. He will be kept in Egypt until they return again with their brother Benjamin. Then Joseph gave the command to fill their sacks with grain, to restore every man's money to his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey, thus he did for them. Now, the fact that the money was restored to their sacks, that they were not allowed to pay for the grain, though they don't realize it yet at the time, is a testimony of what? Easy. Reformation. Grace. No, you're right. Sola gratia. You know, grace alone. Okay? It's a testimony to God's grace. So they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed from there. But as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, he saw his money, and there it was in the mouth of his sack, and he freaks out. So he said to his brothers, my money has been restored, and there it is in my sack. Then their hearts failed them. I love that expression in verse 28. It's like their hearts sank. And they were afraid, saying to one another, what is this that God has done to us? Isn't that fantastic? 
And Joseph is acting, as we say in the liturgy, in the stead and by the command of his Lord, even when he is ministering the law to them. Then they went to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, and told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man who is Lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. True. We said to him, We are honest men. We are not spies. It's true they said that, but it was a lie. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is with our father in the land of Canaan. The man, then the man, the Lord of the country, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me, take food for the famine of your households, and be gone, and bring your youngest brother to me, so I shall know that you are not spies, but that you are honest men. Now, what's important to note here is Honesty for the Christian is not finally that you've never lied. Honesty for the Christian is not finally that you've never sinned. Honesty, rather, for the Christian is that when God's word reveals the truth, you confess that it is so. Pastor Gilbert. Is there a significance of Simeon That's a good question, and I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. And I will deliver your brother to you that you may trade in the land. Then it happened as they emptied their sacks that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when both they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob their father said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, Simeon is no more, and you want to take Benjamin away. All these things are against me. Then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he, that is Jacob, said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is left alone. If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. So what an amazing turn of events. Here they have enough food to sustain them, but there is no real peace or uh, happiness or contentment. Now in chapter 43... Joseph's brothers finally are compelled to return to Egypt and to take Benjamin with them because they're out of food and there's no sign of relief from the famine. So it says here, the famine was severe in the land and it came to pass when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt that their father said to them, go back buy us a little food. But Judah spoke to him, saying, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Israel, remember that's Jacob's other name, said, why did you deal so wrongfully or literally wickedly with me as to tell the man whether you still had another brother? But they said, this is again one of these uh, recounting of the story where they just feel their nakedness because they were asked point blank, do you have another brother? They said, the man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? You can imagine Joseph wanting to know the answer to that question. Have you another brother? What are they going to say, you know? And we told him according to these words. How could we possibly have known that he would say, bring your brother down? Then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the lad with me 
and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. Now, notice the change. Reuben had pledged what? If Benjamin were killed, his two sons. Judah offers himself. What's the significance of that? Sheree? Judah, Judah is the ancestor of Christ. Judah is the ancestor of Christ. So, the tribe of Judah is the one out of which Christ descended, and he offers himself to rescue us from the bondage. I myself will be surety for him. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you, and set him before you. Then let me bear the blame forever. For if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned this second time. And their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down a present for the man, a little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds, Take double money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take your brother also and arise, go back to the man. Now, will they ever be allowed to pay both for the first grain and now for the second grain? No, they will not. Again, it's, it's reminiscent of what would come centuries later where the prophet Elisha will not take any money from Naaman the leper for his cleansing. For salvation is by grace and not by works for all those who are unworthy. And so, take your brother also. And verse 14, And may God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release your brother, your other brother, and Benjamin. Which, of course is what God does. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. Now we'll pick it up here next time to see the events that take place uh, in Egypt. Again, remember last week, this is the longest running narrative other than uh, the narrative of our Lord's ministry uh, in, in, the, in the scriptures. Certainly in the book of Genesis, it is the longest from chapter 39 to 50. So we pick it up here next week.